0: I'm Richard Krause. On the other end of the tubes over there, we have Chris Abel. Hello!
1: Welcoming Woo. you in his own unique fashion. <laughs> I just made that up. I don't know what it means. I don't know what it means either. But it's like peace, but the devil horns at the same time.
0: So. You know, it's, uh, it's it, it like in a Full Metal Jacket, when uh, the character has Born to Kill on his hat, and uh, a peace sign on there, and this drill sergeant says, What the hell does that mean, son? And he goes, It represents duality life, <laughs> 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 the duality of life, sir. Duality of life. The
1: duality of life. There you go.
0: <laughs> uh, well, welcome to the podcast. Uh, the podcast, uh, it beams to you uh, from our layers deep uh, underground. Not really, but it sounds cooler that way. Yeah. And uh, we spend an hour or so uh, chatting about interesting things, or things at least that we find interesting. Uh, So, um, you know, today, well, you have, you always come up with sort of more, uh, um, a a little deeper underground topics than I do. So, so what what did you bring along
1: today? Well, yeah, and I guess I'm changing that up this week uh, because my whole week has been just Blackberry. It's been this huge, uh, you know, the, the, Potential reinvention of a Canadian company for us. Is, it's been fantastic. And it's been nice, as someone who covers gadgets, that I could do this here in Toronto. We had the big Great. launch event here in Toronto. Uh, they had launch events around the world, but uh, Toronto is where people were cheering. They were enthusiastic.
0: Well, Your tweet suggested that it was the only place that people applauded and were cheering and were really, really excited.
1: Yeah. It, and it's. it's it, like, it was, we're not going to lose our jobs. No. We're not.
0: Lose our jobs.
1: <laughs> well, our
0: jobs are safe. Wait, we're not called that anymore.
1: Yeah, no, and it's it is kind of interesting. It's been odd because my role has been uh, basically to be Grumpy Cat for the last three or four days. Because right. you know, I go on and it's this huge enthusiasm. Hey, is the new BlackBerry gonna save the company? And I'm like, no. Really? And why <laughs> so? Because it looks pretty cool to me. I mean, I
0: you know, I'm not a BlackBerry user. I'm a, I'm a smartphone user. And um blackberries, for me, the issue was, you know, giant man thumbs and blackberries never really seem to work very well, but they've, they've uh, changed that problem. They've, they've, they've fixed that problem by having you know a different keyboard now, apparently on the touchscreen ones anyway. Um, and I was looking at it, and, and uh, granted, I haven't held one in my hands, but the stuff that I've seen so far looks pretty cool. looks okay.
1: Yeah. Uh, oh, and I think my issue is that it's just okay. Um, that they, you know, it's a it's a brand new system. So it's not the BlackBerry of old. They've completely reinvented it. Uh, this is a BlackBerry that's designed to emulate the kind of experience that Google and Android were offering. So it's it's not it's going to be different. If you used an old BlackBerry. Immediately, everything has kind of changed, moved around. Um, there's a video that's been posted uh, on a website called Mashable Today where they gave it to people to try to figure out, and they had a hard time because there's no email button anymore. You have to try to swipe the screen to find your email. A lot of changes like that. But there was nothing there that I felt was truly original that I hadn't seen in previous phones before or that stood out as being something that was going to be better than what Apple and Android are offering. It's well, hard because you have. <laughs> You
0: have to well, measure the phone. Kind of and i, I just say, and respond, because maybe you've seen it before, but I hadn't. So I saw a video of someone watching uh, a video on their screen, and then you, you get a little light that blips on that says, oh, I've got an email. And you can just kind of move the, the video a little bit out of the way so it's still playing. That application is still running. Check your email and then go back, and you haven't had to shut one down or, or move away from it. And that seemed fairly new on a phone to me.
1: Yeah, um, so the, the, what you're, you're talking about is is the, the idea that if you swipe from the left of the screen, you can take whatever application you're working on and kind of peek at an incoming email. Yeah. But when you want to work on your email, you still have to stop that application to kind of dive in. It's just to take a quick glance at something that's come in. Who is it important? Should I stop what I'm doing and, and take care of it? Um, we've seen kind of different variations of that. Whereas Microsoft has things like live tiles, or you know, there are notification systems that sort of indicate that something's coming in. But there are other things as well. Like they've integrated all the um, the messaging that comes in from Twitter, Facebook uh LinkedIn all into one field and we've seen companies do that before also the idea that you can look up uh, a contacts list so i could look up Richard Kraus and it would show me not only your phone number uh your address but also the latest statuses that you've had on Facebook or Twitter Microsoft put that into Microsoft Office about a uh, i think a year maybe 2 years ago actually and you know i've seen other companies handle this and specifically companies like Palm which uh back in 2010 was like Research in Motion on the end of uh, the edge of oblivion. They came up with a fantastic film. Palm pilots. Uh, No, 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 no. (laughs) Well, Palm, Palm did make the Palm Pilot, and then they became a market leader with a device called the Palm Trio, and that was about eight years ago, which was huge. And then they just ended up disappearing. They were no longer the number one spot. So they tried to come back, and they came up with a device called the Pre. And it had a huge successful launch. There were very positive reviews. It did a lot of really cool things like integrating all the messages into one place. much like you know, the, the new Blackberry where you have this ability to slide the screen out and look at things underneath, Palm uh what they did was they made everything like it was a pack of cards. You can kind of move the cards back and forth to take a look at things. There were a lot of similarities. And everyone thought it was going to do really, really well. And despite a huge all positive, positive media, lots of hype, within about sixty days it was dead. No one had bought it. Isn't it that- and yeah.
0: <laughs> and why, and why, why so? I mean, you you analyze these markets. Why do you think it just, that people just weren't interested?
1: Uh, it's a combination of a bunch of things. It's the fact that a cell phone is so expensive because there's a huge uh, commitment in terms of contracts. People get tied into one specific sort of uh, what they call an ecosystem. You've got all your apps and things like that. That's part of it. I mean, it's surprising because you don't see this in any other market. This cell phone market is really- been a comeback before. If Research in Motion, now Blackberry, is successful, they'll make history as right. being the first real cell phone company to come back, because everybody else has just died. Motorola, uh, which led the market with the Motorola Razr, yeah. now is owned by Google, and people are wondering what Google's going to do with it. Uh, Palm, after they uh, died with the Palm Pre, got purchased by Hewlett-Packard and nothing's happened there and Nokia which was the number one smartphone for the longest time uh, now is making phones for Microsoft so there is this sense that you know the odds are really stacked against you so coming from this position if you're launching a new phone it can't just be okay it can't just be neat it has to be great right. and i find that uh, the blackberry just isn't that hmm.
0: I'm interested in that because, you know, I, I had an Android for a while. I had, you know, the regular, I had every cell phone on the planet, uh, uh, you know, for years there uh, and, and you know, from really big ones in the early days and they slowly got smaller and, you know, flips and all that stuff. And then I went to an Android and I didn't love the Android. Everyone told me, and I think maybe even you were one of them, get the Android, get the Android, it's the way, it's the way. And I, I, I just didn't like it. And uh, it was it was big for one thing, but it also it didn't really seem to me to easily do the things that I wanted it to do. Whereas the iPhones are idiot-proof. And maybe it's, I mean, I, I, uh, you know, I, I'm someone who uses technology. I mean, I'm, I'm on this thing constantly, and, you know, between this and my iPad, and it's not like I've never, you know, that, that I don't know how to use these things. But I just find that this is so user-friendly, and in an atmosphere that sometimes I feel a little overwhelmed by the amount of changes and all that kind of thing, maybe launching brand new sparkling new things that work slightly different than what you're used to. People are just like enough. Jesus. It's it's enough of um, changing all the time for me.
1: Well, yeah. And I think you've hit it uh, the nail on the head because the experience when you, you grab the new phone and, I actually have it here, and look, it looks like any other phone. It's a big slab of black glass. But the the experience you have is like, ooh, that's kind of neat. But then you have to realize that this is an entire new experience you have to adapt to. Uh And you begin to wonder, what are the real advantages here? Am I doing something that's really significantly cool? I can peek at my email. I don't know if that's, at the end of the day, uh, going to be worth all the change that's involved in making that adjustment. Well, uh, the one thing
0: the one advantage that i that I will say for uh people who get a lot of emails for people who are on the road for people that are that are doing business off of these things this phone my smartphone only seems to archive uh, emails i don 't know forty or fifty of them you know and I can get forty or fifty emails an hour sometimes, yeah. so you know it it mm-hmm. it doesn 't always uh to me. Uh, I go looking for something, it's like, it's not there. It's gone. It's disappeared into the ether somewhere. Whereas BlackBerry archives, they save everything. You can have hundreds of emails or more.
1: No, that's very true. Uh, Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how things go. I, I thought it was odd that, well, it made sense that they've changed their name from Research in Motion to BlackBerry because people were referring to the company as BlackBerry anyway. But now that you've gotten to this problem where you can have a conversation where you can say, look, this is my BlackBerry BlackBerry. It runs BlackBerry 10 uh, with apps from BlackBerry World. So I don't know what they're going to do to try to, to solve that. I thought, well, that's great because now you can actually come up with some fun names for the phones themselves. It's the BlackBerry Fusion, the BlackBerry Tornado. And instead, it's, this is the, the Z10, and the other one's the Q10. Well,
0: you know what? It worked for cars for years. You know, yeah. <laughs> that's in the 20s or whatever they were, you yeah.
1: At the end well, of the day, you know, it, it's a BlackBerry, and that's all that the people kind of you know are concerned about. The big thing that I think we're all forgetting, and it's easy when you've got a lot of hype, people will remember this a couple of months ago, is that this phone is arriving a year late. Uh these phones were supposed to be out a year ago. So there's been a long delay. And now, even though they said look, they're holding it up on the camera, uh, it's coming to Canada on the fifth, one of the phones. The other one's going to have to wait. Um, it won't arrive until the U.S. until March, so there's already a delay. And then the one that everybody wants, the one with the keyboard on it, there's, yeah. there's no release date. There's no hint. Um, I was at the launch, and the whole place was full of this version of the phone that you could try out. They didn't have the one with the keyboard. So there's already hints that the problems at the company haven't been fully resolved. Some people think that this is all about just making the company look really good so they can be bought out.
0: Maybe so the stock price hasn 't rebounded particularly well, though has it
1: no and and um, a lot of the analysts have saying things that are very similar to myself. in fact, one analyst keeps citing Palm and the Palm Prix as being uh, parallel like this is deja vu we 've seen this before, but there 's a lot of positivity about a product that has very similar features but just died the moment that it hit, hit market, and so a lot of people kind of feel that this is not good. This phone should be out now and that it's not hints that there may be problems. And that the problem is that we've been talking about this phone for a month and no feature has turned into its own news story. When Siri came out, you know, it was, people were talking about the phone, but they were also talking about Siri when, you know, Samsung came out with their OLED, um, super OLED displays that became a separate story. Even though you get about 10 different little features here, nobody's really talking about any one of them. So,
0: also, I don't trust uh, people who cheer over a cell phone. So all that reaction, <laughs> it's a damn phone, people. <laughs> you don't need to be that excited. Um, well, continuing <laughs> on with this thought, uh, earlier today, um, I was taping my radio show, and I taped a segment with uh, the woman who wrote this book. It's called The Friday Society by Adrian Cress, And it is a young adult novel, steampunk adult novel. And, uh, yeah. And uh, it's doing well. Big hardcover, you know. Nice little, uh, nice little addition to the library. But um, uh, Adrian uh, told me uh, some interesting things because I, I, I asked her the question. You know, aiming a, a, a book like this at a young audience, um, a young audience who, you know, I have this idea. Being an old man. That you know, kids only uh, live in like this new virtual world now. You know that they, that they that everything is all on tablets and they're reading books on everything. And uh, and she said no. Uh, young people frequently are buying books. They are they still the the tablet thing hasn't taken off. And uh, you know we also talked about. Um, you know, other uh, uh, groups of, of people that are getting together, younger people who are getting together and, you know, doing some sort of arts and crafts and things together and stuff. Sort of much more old school kind of things. And, you know, I, I wonder uh, if it is a reaction to the amount of technology that is in our lives and the stuff that has been left and lost or, or, or you know, was predicted to go missing. The idea of sitting down. With a book and reading words off a page, rather than you know reading it off a screen. Um, if if young people are, are uh, uh, or younger people are um, finding the, the 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 old school primal kind of pleasure in those things and reject not rejecting, because they'll still use all their other stuff, but integrating old and new in a way that I think that mid period people like myself. Um, don't, I, everything's on a damn screen for me these days, but I think younger people, but I already had my years of books and, you know, older, older pleasures. And I, and and it seems to me like younger people are, 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 shifting backwards a little bit and looking at that stuff and saying, you know what? Uh, I actually want to talk to someone face to face rather than, you know, via my computer and that sort of thing. So maybe there's, maybe things are changing in a way that I certainly might not have predicted.
1: Yeah, well, I think part of it is that you're talking now about a generation where this is reality. From the day that they were born, they're being born into a world that is highly virtual or cybernetic by nature. And inevitably, as you get older, you want to find an escape from that reality. Yeah. You know, and much like, I guess, for myself, because I grew up in a world where there was no computers when I was born. It was just, well, computers kind of existed, but not really there. For me, then, computers was an escape away from that reality. Right. I came from a, a world where you know you're trapped in a classroom. Uh, you have to deal with only the books that are available at the the school library, and they, they're awful in terms of the information. You're trying to learn about astronomy. And there's no information there whatsoever. So, being able to go on a computer and go online and get that information was for me an escape. So I think for a younger generation, yeah, you know, suddenly you go online and uh, you want to kind of. St- do something in the real world and the great thing about the internet is that it will connect you to places where you can learn how to do arts and crafts and build your own things and i think that's partly the success of of steampunk as a movement as well because it teaches young girls this is something you can build at home and share in that sense
0: yeah it's interesting and you know there's an interesting article today uh in the new york times about uh chinese hackers who have been persistently attacking the new york times and they infiltrated as computer systems, they were getting passwords uh, for its reporters and, and other employees. And this went on for a very long time. This went on for months and months and months, and then people were brought in to, to uh, quell that kind of activity. But it turns out that uh, there may be a connection to uh, China's prime minister uh, through this, a lot of the Methods that the hackers were using were sort of Chinese military methods and that sort of thing. So all very interesting. And and, you know, while I was I was luckily untouched by this uh, hacking scandal, um, you know, I just have noticed that more and more online, I'm getting nervous to click on things. Uh, My Facebook account seems to be filled. This morning, I, I I got up and I checked my Facebook, and. You know, the little the world that tells you how many comments and things you have. You've got 75 new comments. I'm like, what did I put up? The blah, 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 you know, and I looked, and it was the same comment on everything that I posted for, you know, the last few weeks. And uh, it was to shoot me over to some, you know, people are saying crazy things about you in this video. You should check yeah. it out. Go to, you know. And so, of course, you don't click on any of that stuff, but, but it just seems that more and more now emails are coming in and things that that just make me feel uncomfortable in a way that I've never felt before with this sort of thing.
1: Yeah, it's hard. And, again, it's, it's um, dealing with the fact that the Internet – Connects you to the world as a whole, and so it's no longer just about people who are nasty in your neighborhood or people who are nasty in your province. It's now the whole planet. There, there are there are people who are growing up in Taiwan that suddenly realize that they can have an impact on the world if they create a virus or a scam, and it'll hurt people in New York or the United States. And so, it's it's now there was I think in a previous generation you had to learn to become streetwise. Right. about how you dealt with people in your neighborhood, or your city. Now we have to become street-wise on a global scale. And I guess it's, you know, it's just the payoff of of now having access to the world.
0: Yeah, we have access to the world. I mean, I sometimes wonder if we need access. When, when I look at I mean, and you know, and that grumpy old man, I'm just listening. I'm a, I'm just I'm I'm thinking aloud here more than anything else. But, you know, when I I I I, I, I the the internet should be something more than a time waster you know it should be we've got such a, a potential to do something interesting with it and, and you know in some cases absolutely it happens but you know sending funny pictures and videos around I don't think is enough
1: no well, and I think that's more um, maybe it's a it's about coping stress yeah anxiety things like that but you do have people out there who you know you can go to places like constructables and, and you have maker fair the internet can be a wonderful place to try, sort of get organized about things that you want to do. We, we spoke uh, I think it was last episode we talked about the awarding ball. Fantastic! You know, That's a real example of I, I don't think that that would have happened in a previous generation but now that everybody's connected and kind of realizing wow I, I love to do you know Victorian style stuff too. You know you can get together and sort of have real world events that kind of reflect that. Mm-hmm. This is- I mean
0: I, I, I had a long conversation uh, with someone earlier this week about The you know pre-internet life, and uh, when if you were like I was a record collector, and you just you know you would hear about things, you'd read about things, and you'd go, oh my god, James Brown has a Christmas album! I totally want that Christmas album, and then you'd have to try and track it down, and you went you combed through record stores, and you wrote letters to people, and that sort of thing, and it all seems very quaint now, but there's something kind of thrilling about it for me, this kind of thrill of the chase of of trying to find. Something like that. Whereas now I could go on eBay and have it delivered to me within a day or so if I wanted. And I, I, I think that sort of sucks some of the fun out of it for me a little bit.
1: Well, it's, it's still there. Um, I've been – I find it really, really hard to find new music that I like. Even right. though there are so many services out there. But I, I find that as you get more and more people connected, things become more and more homogenized. Right. It seems like every new music app that I'm testing, the first thing it does is it gives me Call Me Maybe by Carly Rae Jepsen. And I'm, I'm like, I, I know about that song already. What I want to learn is the other sort of forms of music that are out there. And I've had to invest a lot of time and in digging into it to try to find the stuff that I like, the, the, the psycho Billy. Rockabilly music yeah. that's down in the United States. Sweden has this huge movement right now of trying to revisit past music genres and bring it back. Uh, lately, I've been, you know, exploring a whole genre called electro swing, which is where they take music from the 1920s wow. and give it an updated dance beat. And there's a, a woman named um, Alice Francis. That's her name. Who? fantastic song that has just come out. But I have to really, really dig hard to find that stuff. And so to me, it's become like uh, being in a foreign city and you're looking for the vintage uh, record stores to try to find that stuff. It's just, it's there, but it's much harder to to sort of access than it was, say, you know, before.
0: Alice Francis is also the name of uh, one of the survivors of the Titanic. Oh. (laughs) I'm just looking her up here. (laughs)
1: Maybe she's oh, uh, you know chosen that for that reason. Yeah, but oh, it's okay. funny because very elegant looking cover here. Let me uh, let me. Throw- you know the way um, Lady Gaga will refer to her fan is my little monsters. Yeah. Uh, Alice Francis refers to her fans as my little flappers.
0: Oh yeah. Well, look at the uh, the album cover is great.
1: Oh yeah, it's fantastic.
0: That's really cool. And uh, it's uh, I love that the little cat has a top hat. I don't know if you can really see it. The screen's going. Yeah. Oh, well, that's excellent. That is good stuff. Uh-huh. Yeah, and
1: there, there's a whole sort of scene in that area uh, of Europe right now where they have there's the Electro Swing uh, Club in Berlin, and right. they just play all these bands and different acts, and I, that's what I've been sort of finding. There's a, a DJ in London, England, who calls herself Tallulah Good Times, uh, and <laughs> this is the kind of music that she plays. And so this is this is you know the result of me hunting online for hours and hours and hours uh to try to find this stuff and it's not easy to come across. It's not like unfortunately, you know, if I want to find a, a new video about a cat, that's easy to come across. People share that kind of content all the time, but this kind of, you know, um, eccentric, you know, underground taste, it's still underground.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think but but I think that's kind of the point of it. You know, in in some ways is that, you know, as we discussed with steampunk uh, uh last week, you know, now that uh, you know, like Adrian Kress, who wrote this book, told yeah. me um, she'd heard that you know it's coming, it's becoming a bit more mainstream. But she worked for two years on this. You know, again, when she goes, "It's a happy coincidence for me. I'm not cashing in, but others will." And so it's going to be, you know, uh, uh, when it when it stops being sort of underground-ish and goes more mainstream, I think it it, it sucks some of the, the the cool factor out of it just a little bit.
1: Yeah, there's going to be a big difference between her. She wrote that book at a time when there was zero expectation that there were going to be many people who are actually going to read that book. Yeah. And someone who a year from now will go, ooh, steampunk is huge. I'm going to cash in on it. So, yeah, it's it's kind of, you know, you still, no matter whether it's online or offline, there's, there's still those barriers to try to find, I think, the content that's out there that's sincere.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I, I, so often now, I, I find myself having a rough time determining whether, uh, you know, the the song that pops up when I'm looking for something new and cool is sponsored by somebody and they they paid to be the top couple of choices that come up on Google or whether it's just sort of organic or what, you know, and, and, you know, I, I, you know, I, I, in the earlier days of the internet, I, I think it was much more the Wild West, you know, it was much more kind of a um, you know, and anything goes kind of thing. And now people are so desperate to figure out how to make money out there that there's all these kind of, frankly, nefarious ways uh, of making money. Which is why Lady Gaga just lost, you know, however many million hits from her YouTube accounts. Uh, you know, because who would have thought ten years ago that you would have a company that that provides hits for YouTube videos?
1: Yeah, really. Yeah, yeah it would get paid large amounts of money to inflate the numbers. Yeah.
0: And, you know, that to me is a little bit nefarious. That to me is cheating. That is, in the old days, it was, uh, you know, because you set your, you know, newspapers and that kind of thing, set their advertising rates by the amount of circulation they have, so you, you know, inflate your circulation. Well, you know, that was a lie. This is cheating as as well as being a lie.
1: Yeah, it's not even marketing. It's one thing, you know, it's one thing in the old days when they'd have a, a scary movie in the theater and they'd park an ambulance out front. And, and right. you know, have people dressed as doctors and sign releases. I love that kind of, um, Cassidy,
0: was the king of that. Yeah.
1: trying to, to artificially inflate the interest in it or, yeah. or get, give out a perception. That's one thing. That's being very creative. But when you're just gaming the system, when you're just sort of playing with the numbers, yeah, it's very nefarious. And I don't like it when I see young amateur talent out there trying to duplicate that, thinking yeah. that's the, the example that you have to
0: follow. Well, what happens because, you know, people like Lady Gaga and Psy with Gangnam Style make money off these things. They make money off the hits. So what happens when, you know, YouTube says, hey, wait a damn minute. You didn't get those hits legitimately. I mean, you would imagine that there would have to be some financial arrangements made, right?
1: I think so. I mean, I I don't – I'm trying to remember when that was first reported if it was said that YouTube was going to take away the revenue.
0: Right.
1: But I would imagine that they would. Because you know what's happening is you're cheating the yeah. advertisers. People paid good money for those keywords to have their ads displayed thinking that it was going to be genuine customers that were going to be seeing those ads. So yes, I mean you're, it's not just a moral issue. It now becomes almost a, a criminal one because you're cheating people out of a, a product that they purchased. So yeah, yeah no. really nasty. Oh
0: the damn internet. That, yeah. but that means I, into- I, I feel like Clint Eastwood, you know, get off of my lawn. I feel like that today. But I don't know what you know I I don't know what has brought all this on. Um perhaps it's the uh the illness of Ron Jeremy. That's made me think a little bit. He uh, let me, uh everyone knows Ron Jeremy as the yeah. uh very famous porn star. This is uh, uh me and him a long time ago when he was making he tried to make mainstream movies there for a little while. I, I interviewed him for something. And I hosted a, a, a signing that he did at HMV. Uh, and it got a little bit out of control. I'm not going to lie. You know, with his uh, porn you know, uh, posse that showed up. And it was uh, pretty fun. But I'll tell you, he's a gentle, sweet guy. Not at all what you would imagine a guy that's made 2000 porno movies uh, to be like he has a hard aneurysm, he's still in intensive care, so our best goes to Ron Jeremy.
1: Our best definitely goes to Ron Jeremy. Uh, Yeah, he is someone who is a great example of someone who could have turned into a real slimy jerk over the years. You know, he's had, it's hard to... Really put yourself in the shoes of what it must be like to be at the center of all that attention, and yeah. for him to at the end of it still be a, a decent cool guy to hang out with you know so if you meet Ron Jeremy in the wild and I know people who have if you've traveled to l a you might walk into a bar and there he is he's a really cool guy just to come over and say hi and you know well, there's no pretension to him at all
0: and, and i'll tell you you know he he apparently has made an awful lot of money as well and although you would never know it, and that's but part of his charm is that when he showed up I can't remember, because uh, i met him a couple of different times for different things. And uh, I think it was at the HMB event. Uh, he had to go to the airport right afterwards. And he just had these plastic bags with him. And I said something to him about the plastic bags. He goes, that's my luggage. That's what I use as luggage. He just sort of throws, you know, a shirt and a pair of pants in a garbage bag. And that's that's how he travels.
1: Oh, man, that's fantastic.
0: <laughs> yeah. What else do you have today?
1: Well, and I, I this is also a request. I've been told uh, I have to find out what your take is on a, a big story. Uh, I want to talk about Jonathan Colton.
0: Yes. Yes. Now,
1: I, I don't know how familiar you are with him. I know that uh, one of the first times I appeared on your show, your uh, producer played a, a song for me, Code Monkeys. Yep. Code Monkey likes Fritos. Yep. Uh, and that's by the singer Jonathan Colton, who is And they describe him as being an indie artist, but he's one of the more successful indie artists. And he's one of those guys who can write delightful songs that are comedic in terms of the lyrics, but the music is actually really good. It's very catchy. You'll enjoy it. And his particular um, theme has been writing about geeky things. So people who write computer programs and video games and all sorts of stuff and just caught the right place at the right time and became a a, a quite – a folk hero in the world of geek culture.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, he's best known for uh, writing the song at the end of the the, the video game Portal, uh, which Guillermo del Toro is a huge fan of. He actually scooped up the actress that did that song. She's yeah. doing uh, a, a scene in Pacific Rim. It's fantastic. But Jonathan Colton, one of the things like many independent artists, their success sometimes comes from doing cover songs. Yeah when you're just someone who plays little tiny taverns and bars and you go to kind can- of conventions and stuff like that, a good way to try to, to gain awareness is to take a song that everybody knows, but then put your own creative twist on it. And yep. he did this years ago with, um, baby got back.
0: Yeah. I like big butts and I don't know why I like big butts. I cannot deny. It's Only his not... a little
1: different. <laughs> <laughs> no, completely. And that, that's the song, you know? And, um, the thing that he did was that he pulled out an acoustic guitar yep. and he sang it like someone who's singing a, a, a ballad love song towards yep. their, their special There's some very
0: kind of uh, wispy backing vocals that go along with it. Yeah.
1: Back, back, yeah, right. it got back. Yeah. You know um, that kind of thing. And it, it's one of those songs that everybody loves that song. They like to hear it, but he's put his own little twist on it. And of course that, that certainly would help him, as it would help other artists to go around and and be booked for engagements and stuff like that. Well, the uh, the television series from Fox Glee uh, is well known for doing. It. It. You haven't heard of it? No,
0: awesome.
1: I haven't seen it.
0: I, you know what? I've never seen it either. But yeah. I'm very familiar with it. I saw the Glee movie. I reviewed the Glee movie, but I've never seen the show.
1: Never seen the show? And I, I like I know a lot of people who love that show when it first That's came hilarious. out. Everyone at Canada. that's all that they were going on about it. They would tweet about it. Um, but apparently Glee is well known for because it's about a Glee club at a school. They do songs. They sing. And so it was a chance to have uh, young high school characters sing interpretations of songs. And so they've been doing lots of cover songs. And, and yeah, and, and really
0: uh, uh, radically uh, reinterpret hit songs. That's what they're kind of known for, Right.
1: Right. And it turns out, uh, or at least the the allegation has been around for a while, that a lot of their creative twists on songs are actually things that have already been done by independent musicians. That, you know, there's a a woman who did a version of uh, Don't Stop Believing by Journey. Right. But her version sounds like it's done by Yes. It's got that uh, a cappella, and sure enough, Glee did the exact same thing. Um, So Jonathan Colton was surprised when. In a recent episode, they did "Baby Got Back," and they did it exactly with his same creative twist. Uh, and he got really, really upset. He took to Twitter, big, huge outrage. And there's been a huge following of, of not just his fans, but a lot of high-profile people in the media have sort of seemed to have sided with him. You've had Wired magazine, The Onion, AV Club, uh, Cracked magazine has a whole thing out that's today, and then people like Adam Savage from MythBusters and and uh, even Neil Gaiman, the author, and lots of people have been sort of throwing their support right. towards him. But it's been uh, something that people really have a hard time with because they kind of say, well, he, you know, it's not his song. It's Sir mix song. Yeah, but it's his
0: arrangement, yeah. though. And, you know, talk to uh, Quincy Jones, who was an arranger for many, 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 many years. And, and you know, the arranger's job was to come in and take the song, so you've got the tune you've got the melody, you've got the singer you've got you and 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 make it all work. Take all the little pieces and punch it all together. Now, you know bands frequently just work it out, you bash around enough you know with a, a guy with you know two guys on guitar and a drummer, and you'll eventually figure it out. but you know arranging is is an art form. Um, and it's different. It's like being a movie producer. I think no one really knows what a movie producer does because they kind of do a lot of things, you know. And it, and it's sort of an amorphous kind of title. And if they don't know what that person does, they really don't know what an executive producer does. And so um, I think a ranger is one of those jobs that people just go, oh well, he just sort of, you know, he just sort of put a little spin and that's it. But you know, he took uh, someone's art, Sir Mixelot's a lots art radically rearranged it, changed it, and made it his own. And uh, that's what you do when you're covering songs. Why would you ever do a note-for-note cover of a song that already exists? Why would uh, uh, Otis Redding redo Satisfaction the way the Rolling Stones did it? There'd be no point. Instead, he redid it with his own twist and is one of those rare versions that's actually better than the original. So, um, and because you know why it's better, well, the vocal wicked, but also the arrangement. The arrangement is different, and that's that makes all the difference.
1: I completely agree, and, and this has sort of been the basis of what Jonathan Colton's been screaming about. Why I think other people have kind of risen to his support, even though uh, a lot of people have looked at it and said legally, there's there's nothing here that, that is illegal.
0: And you know, the Glee people know that. I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, what the Glee people will say. And and I, I will you know I, I I haven't read their response to this if they even have one but I'm sure what they would say is. What we did is uh, try to take a song that everybody knows and, and uh, uh, you know, reinterpret it in, a, in an interesting way for our audience. What's an interesting way to reinterpret a rap song? Well, you take it and you turn it into something completely different. You turn it into a folk song, you turn it into a samba, or you turn it into something that does not sound like it. And people have been doing this kind of thing for years. It's not a, a new idea to take, you know, a heavy metal song and reinterpret it as a big band song, or you know, vice versa, or whatever. People have been doing that kind of thing for years. So, you know, it could be, there is a, I suppose, a very small outside chance that they never heard the Jonathan Colton version, and somebody just said, hey, it'd be funny to play Baby Got Back on acoustic guitar. It'd be really kind of funny. And it's possible. It's possible because it's the kind of non-linear thinking that maybe you have to have when you have to come up with, I don't know how many songs they, they send a season, but they probably do 25, 30 songs a season. And you want to reinterpret them all. And that's the kind of non-linear thinking you probably have to come up with. Uh, in this case, they got slapped down.
1: Yeah, and, uh, you know, it's a valid point because this is something we often hear in this industry. Once you get... If you're fortunate enough to do something creative for a living, you're going to run into this issue where you're gonna see a product out there. and oh, I had that idea. I totally did that. you know, um for me, I, uh, there was a short story I wrote when I was in high school that became very, very popular, and it was a story that, you know, it ended up being published in the school newspaper. I had lots of people asking me to to sign their copies, and it was hilarious, and it was all about the trials and tribulations of a little squirrel trying to cross the road and get this, you know, piece of fruit home, all sorts of stuff. And later on, several years later, I saw Ice Age, and watching Scrapped go through the same trials and tribulations for an acorn, kind of hit home. But it's, it's one of those moments you realize, you know, it's not that original idea. Other people are going to reach the same conclusions that you do. The twist with this story is that when Glee came up with their version, they, did, <laughs> they forgot that Jonathan Colton had changed the lyrics slightly. Oh, good. There's enough. a moment in the song in which Sir Mix-a-Lot refers to himself and say, "Hey, Sir Mix-a-Lot." So right. he changed it to Johnny C, as in Jonathan Colton. So his name was oh, actually God. in the lyrics of his version, and when Glee sang it, they sang Johnny C.
0: Okay, well that that okay, take what I just said and completely ignore the the, <laughs> the uh, uh, you know the subconscious uh, plagiarism, because you know that's what happened with uh, George Harrison, right? Uh, My Sweet Lord, beautiful song, big hit, post Beatles. Everyone thought George Harrison was going to be the one. Who knew he was going to be the one to break out and become, you know, the the big Beatle, the big, uh, everyone thought it would be John Lennon or Paul McCartney. Things changed a little bit after that. But he got sued by the people that wrote She's So Fine. And they said, well, you know, if you look at the chord progression, look at the notes, it's all, it's the same song. But the chorus is the same. And so, of course, it goes to, a judge and they study. They bring in musicologists. They bring in everybody to study this thing. And finally, the judge comes to a ruling. And I think he's, he he may well have been right about this. That George Harrison didn't deliberately copy the song. He probably knew the song. And he's someone who's written hundreds of songs. He knows thousands of songs. And he was tooling around in a guitar one. And he's like, man, that sounds all right. Yeah. You know, only eight notes. What the hell? You know, like you're not always going to put them together in a new way. And and so he, he you know, he eventually had to pay, but he uh but it was it, it wasn't deliberate plagiarism. And I think that was fair in that case. The glee case sounds uh, much different. The Johnny C thing is you just know so many glees going, damn it, damn it, damn it, why didn't we pay why didn't we just, you know, Google the original lyric sheet?
1: Completely. And, and of course, people have taken uh, the Glee recording, and they've taken Jonathan Colton's recording, and you can actually go on YouTube, and they, they play both at the same time, and every note aligns perfectly. Uh, in terms of of tempo, you can hear every word, every song. It's all matched up. It's almost as if they've taken the backing music from Jonathan Colton's recording yeah. and used that to record their own vocals on top of. In fact, there are people analyzing the sound that says, you know, there's a sound effect that Jonathan Colton used a duck quack every time they swear it would just and you can hear hints of that in the Glee recording. So it it, certainly, the image that's being come together is one of a uh, major television studio that's behind the gun. They've got to come up with an arrangement for a song and they just took one off the internet and decided to to do a version of it.
0: That's extremely bad form. Uh, And, you know, Jonathan Colton has has done an interesting thing, though. He's posted his version on iTunes and he's given the money to charity, right? That's right. Yeah and that's that's a good way I mean cuz really I mean he can sue and I suppose he probably is but you know there'll be no immediate satisfaction from this it'll go on forever and uh it will it will uh you know boil down to you know uh, semantics probably whether or not you know his his version was played addressed, whether or not you know an arrangement is enough to qualify as a I, you know, I, he'd probably be better off have a happier life if he just didn't bother suing Fox Television <laughs> and, uh, and just moved on and said, you know what, this is a learning experience for me right now. Well, his, me, he take the high road and look like the good guy.
1: Yeah, when people started contacting him to uh, do interviews because it's a good story, that kind of thing, uh, his approach was to say, look, you know, I asked my, my people, my agency that represents me to reach out to Fox just to, I wanted to have a conversation with them about it. Because it, it what my guess would be
0: they don't want to have that conversation. Is that where the story's going?
1: <laughs> yeah, pretty well much. Yeah, I, I mean, his initial issue was, look, it's it's not about you know you stealing revenue, although right. in a way it, it kind of is. It, you know, for these artists that go out to do these cover tunes, if Glee now becomes known for that cover cover song, it makes it really hard for these independent artists to go off and, and perform that song. Right. Well, but, it
0: sounds like he's copying Glee.
1: Correct, and that's sort of and I think the problem. He's facing against, and he kind of said, you know, um, this could have been easily solved if you'd just given me a nod, right. if you had let me know that it was going to be uh, used in the show, or if in the show you at least made some acknowledgement that, you know, uh, you were inspired by my, my version of the song, or something along those lines, and that there, there's a healthier way to kind of uh, achieve this. And he said the response that he got from the Fox people through his people was something along the lines of, you should just be happy for the exposure.
0: Yeah, see, now, listen, this is something that, and we, I think we've talked about this before. <laughs> this is something you hear a lot when you are, uh, I mean, it, it's particularly bad for musicians. You know, restaurants and bars and things.
1: Uh-oh. It would appear that we have lost Richard Krause. I hope that it's, uh, it's only temporary and that he'll be back. In the meantime, I think that, uh, oh, no, Richard's gone. Can he make it back? I'll have to wait and see. I'm going to email him and and hope that, uh, oh, oh, he's back. Yay. Hey. Woo. <laughs> um,
0: but it, this is particularly prevalent uh, with musicians and comics uh, who would entertain in bars and restaurants and that kind of thing. And, you know, bars and restaurants will say, well, you know, it's great for your exposure, so we're not going to pay you. Or we'll pay you in beer, or we'll buy you a meal, or, uh, you know, you can sell your CDs after the show and, you know, make some money that way. And, you know, the, the, the analogy that has always been used uh, uh, or has been suggested to me several times is, so you, let's say you, you want to hire a band, four-piece band to play in your restaurant, and you don't want to pay them. Um, The analogy would be, well, let's say you have a huge uh, plumbing problem. Would you ask four plumbers to come in and just say, listen, I'll buy you beer afterwards once you fix the thing. You know, once you fix that, which is going to generate income for me because people can flush the toilet upstairs or whatever, turn on the water. Same thing. You have live music. You're going to draw a crowd who are going to spend money on beer and food and that sort of thing. And, you know, this whole thing about doing stuff for exposure, while, you know, it can pay off every now and again, I suppose. I mean, you know, I I have uh, a couple of websites um, that I will do stuff for little or no money, even though it goes against the grain for me. Um, I have a a hard and fast rule about not uh, uh, doing anything without being paid for it in terms of writing. Um, But there's a couple of websites that are either small enough uh, but interesting enough that uh, I, I feel like I, w- I would feel bad charging them um, and you know whatever I'm, I'm, I'm happy to help out and then other websites that are so big that you're kind of like well you know what? it wouldn't be a bad thing to have my name on this but uh, but those are few and far between for me because the exposure thing you know what I, I you know exposure doesn't pay my mortgage
1: no and the, the era of exposure is over. I mean, you know, that sort of ended, I think, way back in the 1980s. The moment that you have hundreds of different channels on television and you have all these different services, exposure, you know, the age where you could go and appear on Johnny Carson and do and one stand up set, yeah. yeah, and have a career out of that, that's gone. So th- there isn't really too much value to exposure. But even then, you know, I hate it when you hear it from a multi billion dollar corporation. And I know you're hearing it from somebody who, who works in a small department of the, of the show that has a limited budget and all that kind of stuff. It's still a multi-billion dollar corporation. They can afford to to give you the money. But in this case, as he pointed out, since they didn't mention him and he wasn't listed in the credits,
0: yeah.
1: is it secret exposure? Or just you know <laughs> what? Exposure. Well, I mean, uh, uh,
0: but I will tell you, I mean, you know, in, in terms of it all, he hasn't done too badly by this. I mean – it has resurrected a record of his that you know probably has been sitting you know dormant for a while, mm. and you know he will get some exposure from this, and people are talking about it. Maybe you know buying other songs of his on on iTunes and that kind of thing. I'm not saying it's right or that he should do it for the exposure at their right, but you know there are different ways of 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 taking advantage of what is a crappy situation. Yeah, and I think you know by by sort of you know. I mean, he's he's upset. I've read a couple of things with him when, you know, he's a little upset. And I don't yeah. But he is. But but I think I, I think he's getting good advice when he's saying, you know, give the money to charity, put the thing up online, don't make it look like you're just upset because you didn't make the $2,000 that they would have paid you for the arrangement, you know. That doesn't matter. That that That's not enough money to be that upset about. But you can take the high road and, you know, have us talk about it, have articles written about you. He's probably, he'll turn up at the end of the year. I mean, it's a bit early, yeah. But at the end of the year, he might turn up on the most Googled names of the year list, you know? Uh,
1: yeah, I, I, well, and, and I guess the, the, the point is that for him, when this whole started, it would have been very easy to just walk away and feel defeated because his legal counsel kind of went, you know, there's nothing you can do. you It's yeah. a cover song. You know, you'll you never win. Uh, and his approach, I think, has been an interesting one because, you know, the other annoying part of sort of finding defeat in this is that you could say, well, you know, Glee played the song on their show. So Glee releases those songs on iTunes. And people make money off of it. They make money off of it. So it's really irksome when they're only offering kind of exposure. So, yes, his approach was to re-release the song and then get everybody to buy that instead of Glee's version off of iTunes and to donate the money to charity. That's really good. But hopefully he's made some kind of a point that may be beneficial to other independent uh, singers as well. Maybe at Glee they're now having meetings about how they choose their songs for the next season and how they handle their relationship to the independent artists that they're drawing ideas from, you know? Oh,
0: you know, at Glee, at least two people were fired symbolically. New and new. Fired. Jonathan yeah. Golden, once you fired. You're fired. And that they will be a little bit more careful about it. I mean, one of the reasons they probably didn't wish to discuss it with them particularly is that would could potentially open up a door that they don't want to open up with other artists coming in and going, well, you know, I mean, you paid this guy off uh, yeah. for an acoustic version of, you know, a rap song. Well, I had the operatic version of that Journey song that you did, you know, and I did it first on my little indie record, you know. Yeah. And so they probably just wanted to avoid... What could be, you know, I'm not saying it would happen, but it could. You know, that this is kind of how this happens. I read yesterday, someone posted on Facebook yesterday about the biggest settlement in Hollywood history. I was like, well, this sounds interesting. I'm going to click on this, and it's a story about a woman who um, uh, declared herself that she was a prophet. No, what was she? Yeah, some sort of uh, uh, like a prophet, and you know, something else. Uh, new Age. She was a New Age practitioner of some sort. Okay. Who claims to have written uh, a short story that echoed almost to a to a T the Matrix oh. in like 1987 or something like that, and also claims to have written another story that the Terminator was based on, oh. and that she had you know the 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 Matrix thing uh, she had submitted it to the Wachowskis and you know they'd rejected it. But you know there were stories in this article about you know people were seen reading the short story on the set and then looking at the drug you know all this kind of stuff and then you know she was she was uh, uh, awarded two point five billion dollars B, a billion with a b now as it turns out the story's not true uh it, it it but it was you know reported somewhere that,
1: that's a hoax is what you're yeah. saying the the story's a hoax she yeah, no, nobody true. got two point five billion dollars okay no.
0: No, let me find it. Let me look up some details here so I can be. I didn't know I didn't anticipate talking about this. And I kind of, I, I I looked it up, and it was easy to prove that it was uh, wrong. Yeah. Uh Like not hard at all.
1: Uh, well, I'm just thinking from a legal standpoint because there would be more basis for uh, all those movies to say we're drawing upon the works of Philip K. Dick.
0: Yeah, I mean, Rather you know, than than, than than unpublished short stories that, yeah. you know, and but but again, I think that the 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 point uh, is that there's always someone who's willing to sue, and I think that people are yes, um, you know, so uh, or the you know, studios and and you know the television shows and things are you know have to be very very aware and sort of try and protect themselves at all times. So that's why. Jonathan Colton's, you know, had a very unsatisfactory uh, interaction with these people because they're trying to not get sued. Uh, I'm just looking to see if I can find this story because it really was quite something.
1: Yeah, it does Um, sound phenomenal. I know um, Harlan Ellison tried to um, sue James Cameron because he felt The Terminator was based on a story he did for The Outer Limits, I believe. He was really, really, really angry about that. So it's...
0: Well, this, uh, this was quite something, but, you know, I went to Snopes.com and they're like, oh, this story again. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and I thought to myself, you know, uh, $2.5 billion, would I not have heard about this uh, yeah. somewhere? Would this not have been reported somewhere? You know, I hosted an event with the Wachowskis uh, uh, in September. Do you not think that they might have mentioned, hey, we just had to pay you $2.5 billion? You know, uh, it might have come up without, uh, you know, hearing about it uh, just, you know, randomly online.
1: Yeah, well, and the danger isn't always so much that you're going to have to pay out a lot of money, but that litigation tends to tie things down. And yeah. in any kind of, you know, when you're dealing with whether music or television or movies, you, <laughs> development hell is something that you have to face in the normal course of events, let alone suddenly having a, a legal, you know, suit sort of filed against you and slowing everything down uh, from there.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, I cannot find, and I can't remember her name. Oh, wait, here we go. All right. Here we go. Crazy lady. Creator of the original creator of Matrix and Terminator wins $2.5 billion in a a lawsuit. Uh, After a six-year dispute, prolific writer and profound spiritualist Sophia Stewart has received justice for copyright infringement and racketeering, and will finally recover damages from the films Matrix One, Two, and Three, as well as the Terminator and all its sequels. Yes, you heard that correctly. The entire Matrix and Terminator franchise, and her suspected payoff is expected to be in the highest uh, in history, an estimated two point five billion. So, and the story goes on and on and on from there. So, all I did was Google her name.
1: You know, I, I have a suspicion about this story. I think it may be something that she uses to try to get people to give her things. Uh, give mm-hmm. her Who I mean, knows? You know, I've got two point five billion dollars coming my way. i you know.
0: Well, Snopes, um, which is taking a moment to load here. Um, the great Snopes. What's that?
1: The Great Snopes. I think. The great Snopes. Snopes yeah. yeah, and valuable someone, service on the internet.
0: Well, someone on Facebook the other day posted an interesting comment. They're like. Who are the Snopes people? Maybe it's the government that are trying to put out disinformation about you know things that actually aren't urban legends. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> that's that's kind of fantastic. Like you know, it's that uh, um, you know kind of oh, here we go. Okay, so false, big red dot, false. Um, and there's a long explanation here uh, about why it is false. Um, but uh, the globe subsequently posted the following correction in reference to the recent article entitled mother of the matrix victoria some information has been deemed misleading miss sophia stewart has not yet won her case against joel silver time warner and the wachowski brothers so The decision on october fourth enabled mrs stewart or miss stewart to proceed with her case as well as all attempts to have it dismissed were unsuccessful miss stewart's case will proceed through the central district court of california that was in two thousand four uh, but, um, yeah, no, you know, last update in 2011, and there's been no, yeah, there's nothing here that is uh, um, anywhere near uh, a, a, a conclusion to the story. And uh, the Los Angeles Times uh, has a story called The Billion Dollar Myth yeah. <laughs> in reference <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. to it. <laughs> yeah. that's good but that that could be so annoying if you're the wachowski brothers you're trying to work on your next movie and you get a phone call say like, oh you know we got that next phase of that lawsuit from the crazy lady you, you know we need you to kind of yeah it's money. just you know
0: but but you know so often i mean she's asking for an enormous amount of money so often uh and you know this is just you know a truism in mean, hollywood sometimes people just get paid to go away Yep. you know and and uh, often in budgets of movies and things like that people you know you budget in an extra hundred or two hundred thousand dollars just in case you end up getting sued or something you know untoward happens here's 50 grand just go away right I uh, just make this stock it's probably cheaper to give someone 50 grand than it is to go to court and pay a lawyer 300 grand to defend it and most people who are you know if they're on the edge of you know, of, being, of the case being first, will go, yeah, I'll take 50 grand to go away, absolutely.
1: Well, there's a story, and now I'm questioning whether it's even true, that uh, filmmakers, when they would shoot in New York, would get harassed by the mob and say, look, you know, if you don't pay some protection, we might accidentally ruin one of your scenes. You're, you're shooting away, you know, suddenly, you know, a car comes screaming through when it shouldn't, or people walk through the scene when they shouldn't, you know, they're, for a long time, apparently... Filmmakers shooting in New York had to pay off the, the the mafia a little bit. And if I remember correctly, it was Woody Allen that finally said, no, I'm not going to do that.
0: And who wants to ruin a Woody Allen movie anyway?
1: Who wants to? Assholes. Well,
0: that's it.
1: yeah, and part of this myth was also that Martin Scorsese always got a free pass.
0: Right. Yeah, yeah, totally. I've heard that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Who knows? I mean, you know, listen, there's always the stories you hear. I mean, Toronto, uh, you know, Movies get shot here all the time. Movies get shot just outside of my house here quite frequently and you hear stories about, uh, you know, people next door thinking, well, you know, the, the film company's got loads of money. I'm going to, uh, now's a great time to mow my lawn while they're trying to shoot and they'll give me 500 bucks not to, you know, make noise. And uh, in some cases it works, most cases it doesn't. I think people have smartened up the film company and said, you know what, we'll dub in the sound later, screw you, we're not giving you any money.
1: exactly. (laughs) Yes, we now have this technology. It allows us to kind of have better control over the environmental sound. So go ahead, be a jerk all you want. It doesn't matter to us.
0: (laughs) Well, uh, my last thing to talk about is, and and it's not really, uh, you know, that well, it is a big story, uh, but it's a holiday, another Hollywood story. Steven Soderbergh has a new movie coming out next week called Side Effects. And uh, it's, a, it's a thriller starring Jude Law, and uh, it's actually pretty good. Jude Law and, and uh, Rooney Mara. Um, I've seen it. I'll review it. Uh, I can't really talk about a review of it now. But it's kind of a throwback to movies like Fatal Attraction and Basic Instinct. It's a bit of a thriller set uh, in the world of um, psychology and pharmaceuticals. Ooh, cool. Yep, yeah, pretty cool. It's a, it's a cool little movie, and it's beautifully made. Uh, watching it, I was I was impressed with how uh, he knows there's not a, a wasted anything. It's a like David Cronenberg movies. There's not a wasted second in this movie. Like, every shot counts, and everything counts. And that's just Soderbergh. He's a master of his art, uh, and which is why the news, that he's kind of saying, you know, my my HBO film, which is the next thing that comes out, not going to theaters, going to television, straight to television, is called "Behind the Candelabra." It's the story of Liberace, and it stars Michael Douglas and Matt Damon. I cannot wait. Michael Douglas playing Liberace, Matt Damon playing his longtime lover. I mean, this is uh, you know. I can't wait. Uh, uh, but he says that's it. I'm not going to make movies anymore. He said, "There's you know, I, it, it's it, enough that we directors." Uh, are now just a, you know an, an arm of the marketing departments of uh, films of film studios, and enough we don't get treated with respect. You can't make art anymore. I mean, I think he was really badly stung when he made the Che movies, parts one and two. There was, you know, it was turned out to be like a five hour long exploration of the life of Che Guevara, and they weren't received well. No, and he is, and uh, even though they are, I'm not going to say they're entertaining, but they're 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 interesting. The the, okay. the two films, uh, but uh, I I think it's just such a shame that someone like him will be pushed out of this. Now he may well change it. He'll sit around for a year going, uh, uh, I want to make movies. I want to you know I want to express myself somehow, and someone will always give him a job. But right now he's being very vocal about it. he said this is it. You know, this well, is I- it. I'm done with this.
1: I think he has he has said something similar to that effect before, and we seem to be hearing this a lot lately with uh, both actors and directors sort of hinting like, "I'm kind of done with this. I don't really want to do it anymore." I remember after um, *Phantom Menace* came out, Liam Neeson made a big stink about how he was done. He was going to retire from acting. Uh, that hasn't stopped him from then going on and going, "Release the Kraken!" and yeah. doing the Taken mm-hmm. movies. And you know, I mean, yeah, th- these things are said uh, more as an expression of what's they're feeling right now than necessarily how they're going to feel maybe later on, uh, but he's always had at least one hand in doing independent kind of you know stuff that's not required to studio So I think you're always going to have Steven Soderbergh films. You may not have the big budget mm-hmm. Hollywood ones.
0: Yeah, no, he makes movies like uh, The Girlfriend Experience and that sort of thing, which are much different. I mean, they're a much different thing. I, I just think it would be a shame if if this actually happened. Uh, Quentin Tarantino has said that he's going to make ten movies and that that's it. He goes, you know, he's He's 48 or 9 years old. He said, I don't want to be an old man making movies. He said, I have seen too many people. He is the ultimate connoisseur of, you know. Oh, yeah. He knows everything about every movie ever made, it seems. And, you know, he studied the film directors that he admires. And, you know, uh, each and every one of them, in his estimation, you know, they have that period where they're just making brilliant movies and then later on, you're not, you know, he cites Billy Wilder, I think, as an example. Yep. Uh, Hitchcock is an example. And, uh, and he doesn't want that. He goes, I just want to make good movies. I just want to be that guy that made, you know, it's like uh, uh, John Cazale. The actor John Cazale played Fredo in the Godfather movies. Right. It's a tragic story. He was uh, an up-and-coming movie star, Meryl Streep's uh, boyfriend, and uh, he had cancer. And the uh, thing is, he only made four movies. He made uh, Dog Day Afternoon, um, The Two Godfather Movies, and um, um, The Deer Hunter. He made four movies. He's the only actor in history to have every movie that he appeared in be nominated for Best Picture. <laughs> so, you know, he it's a tragic story, but, you know, he left a legacy behind. And Fredo was one of the great characters. So, uh, but, and I think, you know, Tarantino wants to be that guy. He wants to be the guy that it doesn't matter what movie it is you pick out, it's going to be wicked. And so he's, he figures he's got ten that he can make.
1: He's got and, ten. To... Uh, that's going to be
0: it. And I hope, you know, particularly as I uh, become old and decrepit, that, you know, uh, Soderberg, you know, refers in this article that I'm looking at here. He says that he's in the twilight of his career. And, uh... Let's just see how old he is. You know, he's, he's probably in his 40s somewhere, you know. And, and so Soderbergh's in the twilight of his career at age 45, 6 or 7, whatever he is, maybe 48. Uh, Tarantino seems to be feeling the same way. And, you know, uh, we, we seem to be. I, I thought we were in this era where, you know, uh, Zoomers – we're you know, the, the the boomers with zip, as Moses Neinler calls them. You know, we're we're taking back that idea that, you know, as you age a little bit you become a little bit decrepit and not and not as useful. And that's something that I fully uh stand by. And these guys, uh I don't know if I feel they're taking the easy way out or what, but I I, I, I understand leaving a legacy behind, but I don't know.
1: Well, you know, it's very different when your career is dependent upon st- Projects that are multi million dollar in nature. That you know, then you start to kind of take a look at the scope of what you do is saying, Well, there's only so many of these I can do, so maybe I want to make sure that they're the best. But in terms of trying to apply that,
0: exactly my age. I just looked him up, he's exactly my age and he is in the damn twilight of his career.
1: Hardly. Um, You know, but the way I look at it is that uh, our life cycles are now, our lifespans are now longer, thanks to modern medicine and science. And we have as a society of change, we no longer have the traditional patterns of living a life, you know, where someone has reached adulthood and that kind of thing. Also, you know, uh, so for me, I think that if you uh, embrace the idea that you reach a certain point and it's sort of over, then that's your own psychological thing that you're doing. It, it's not reality. It, there is no reason why you can't keep going. There's no reason why you can't find something new to do and still place your mark on the on the world. And for as, as many people as Quentin can point out who didn't do very well at the, the end of their lives or as as many directors who did blossom far later in life.
0: Well, I think I mean Tarantino. You know, I mean, he won't just disappear. He just won't direct movies. He'll write movies, probably. Mm-hmm. Uh, Soderbergh. You know, I, I I think I've read somewhere that he'll be. You know, he'll he'll still create art. He'll be a photographer. He'll be a painter. You know, that sort of thing. Yeah. He's going to disappear. But you know, they're they'll they'll disappear from the thing that made them what they are today.
1: Gotcha. Okay. Well, that kind of makes sense, I guess. And I
0: hate this twilight of my career nonsense from a forty-nine-year-old.
1: Well, you know, there's uh, two things that I can add that have been sort of trying to change that perception of of what happens as you age. The first thing is that modern science has started to realize that our brains take a lot longer to reach adulthood than the rest of our body. Right. That actually, you know, uh, as we get into our 20s, our brains, from a biological point of view, are still in their teenage years. And then on top of that, we've learned there was the sense that as you got older, the number of connections that your brain had would actually deteriorate. Right. And your ability to remember things would also deteriorate, that it's harder to learn languages when you're older. Not true. It turns out it's a big, <laughs> big <laughs> perception. As you get older, your brain actually can still continue to create new brain cells, even right. when you're in your 60s or 80s, and create new connections. And so there's no reason at all at any age not to try something new.
0: My brain has just gotten bigger.
1: There you go. I like to hear it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, do, anything else? Do you anything else? That may no, be, that's, that's good. That may be it for Hey All You Zombies. Um, go to the website, Uh There's all sorts of things here. We'll have some links. So I'm going to put the link uh, to this $2.5 billion lawsuit up there because uh, – now, the article uh, its interesting. The article was just posted on Facebook yesterday that I saw, um, but it's from 2009, I'm noticing here. Also, 2009, who posts that, for one thing, without checking the date? And, uh, and you know, do you think that we might have heard about something about it from, you know, a, a case that happened uh, apparently yeah. before?
1: No, it's crazy. Uh, yeah, by all means, visit Uh, uh Help us uh, discover new music. Let us know if there are any cover songs that you think are really cool and awesome. I'd like to hear that. Or any kind of new genres of music. I mean, I've, I've discovered Electro Swing. I'll send a couple of those links to, to Richard and put them on the website. But cool. tell us about shoegazing, uh, dubstep. Is yeah. there a, a new era of music that you've discovered you'd like to share? We'd like to hear
0: it. Absolutely.